I'm Spencer Bailey. This is Time Sensitive. Hey everyone, it's been nearly four years since the slowdown launched in May 2019 and with it this podcast and ever since we've aimed to be a slow and sustainable counterbalance to the hyper streamlined quick hit dopamine driven culture so pervasive online. Now, as I mentioned briefly on the last two episodes, we've launched a new membership program that includes full access to our digital platform, a slate of new member only newsletters and exclusive invitations to events. You can join us at slowdown.tv slash subscribe. That's slowdown.tv slash subscribe. As we move into this new chapter, I want to thank all of you for the support and enthusiasm for the slowdown and time sensitive to date. And I hope you'll join us for the ride. Now onto the episode. This week, I speak with the journalist and NPR host Ari Shapiro. You may recognize him or at least recognize his voice from NPR's All Things Considered of which he's been the co-host since 2015. Previously, he served as NPR's London correspondent, and before that, during President Obama's first and second terms, he was NPR's White House correspondent. Even before that, he was NPR's justice correspondent for five years. Ari recently published a new book, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening, which, in my mind, is a sort of manifesto for the power of listening in finding connections with, and more importantly, understanding others without judgment. We also get into Ari's time spent singing in the band Pink Martini, with whom he has performed at venues including the Hollywood Bowl and Carnegie Hall, and his work with the actor Alan Cumming in their cabaret show Ach and Oi. I hope you'll find this conversation as extraordinary as I did, and without giving anything away, I recommend you stick around for a particularly special moment at the end. Before we jump into the episode, I'd first like to thank our Season 7 presenting sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. Lecole has partnered with us on Time Sensitive for three seasons in a row now, and we're incredibly grateful for their ongoing support of the program. In addition to its various courses, exhibitions, publications, and research projects, Lecole also offers a new look at the world of jewelry through online talks that bring together two experts for a roughly 45-minute conversation. These talks are then followed by a Q&A session during which attendees can submit their own questions. Held in French and English and simultaneously interpreted in Cantonese, Mandarin, and Japanese, the talks are later available for viewing on YouTube. Participating in these conversations allows attendees to join a community of curious enthusiasts eager to discover and learn. You can find out more about Lecole and join its live online conversations at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now here's my conversation with Ari. Hi, Ari. Welcome to Time Sensitive. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with today. Uh Uh-huh. Right here, right now. Your new memoir, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening, came out yesterday. And tonight you're appearing in conversation with Benj Pasek at Mm -hmm. the Temple Emmanuel. 
Stryker Cultural Center. Tell yeah. me about how you're thinking about this exact moment in time. I'm remembering an interview that my colleague, Mary Louise Kelly, who hosts All Things Considered with me, did with the author of a book where in that conversation, he said, every day has the same number of minutes, but some days are quickly forgotten and others contain a lifetime. And I'm aware that this 24-hour period is one of those moments that contains a lifetime. Like, the conversations and experiences and memories of the last 24 hours are things that I have been anticipating for years and will be thinking back on for years. And so I'm trying to savor it and also just enjoying the ride. Amazing quote. <laughs> Isn't that good? I'm paraphrasing, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a great thing about talking to strangers for a living is that they say things that actually shape the way you view the world, which is kind of what my book is about, like the way the people I've met have shaped my view of the world and the way the person that I am shapes the stories I tell. And in preparing for this interview, it got me thinking about all things considered across time. Mm -hmm. The show began about 52 years ago before you and I were born. 1971. May 3, 1971. Ooh, very good. I couldn't have named the day. With a, well, I have notes. <laughs> <laughs> With a 28-minute, 38-second episode. There was a segment about protests against the Vietnam War. Is that right? Correct. And, okay. And uh, yeah, it's May Day protests against the war. Yeah. And another segment on drug abuse, another on World War I poetry. And mm -hmm. my favorite, a piece on an Ames, Iowa barbershop specializing in shaving women's legs. Amazing. You've previously said you have memories of being a young boy in your parents' living room in Fargo, yeah. North Dakota, hearing all things considered and the theme music as your mother made dinner. And you write in the book that you've been listening to it practically since birth. Absolutely. <laughs> so how do you think about this five plus decade history of the show, but also your own trajectory within it? I mean, what's it like to be the host of a news program that you've listened to your entire life? There are two ideas that come to mind and they're slightly in tension with each other. The first is just don't break it. Like you're inheriting an heirloom and you don't want to be the person who drops it and watches it shatter into a million pieces on the floor. So like you could Kintsugi it, though. Kins oh, right. Like that's Japanese like, gold, right with yeah. gold. Oh. <laughs> I don't know that I have the skills to do that. I'd rather not be faced with that like responsibility. It would be beautiful, but um, I'd rather not have to face that scenario. So the first thing I think is just like, don't fuck it up. By the way, on public radio, I don't say words like fuck. Yeah, that would get bleeped. Here, I, f I feel free with you. So yes, I'm going to just it. let myself do it. So don't fuck it up is rule number one. But then rule number two is like, when it started in 1971, All Things Considered was doing something kind of revolutionary. Like, it was the first show to have a woman host a nationally broadcast nightly news program, Susan Stamberg. That description of the rundown you just gave was not what you would have heard on any other news program in those days. And so while I'm trying not to break it, I'm also trying to keep it vibrant and alive and reflective of the time and engaging and evolving. And that involves not just me, but all of the producers and editors and directors and engineers, many of whom are now a generation younger than I am, and just sort of trying to keep the thing breathing. Not, not breathing like 
conscious and alive, but breathing like expanding and contracting and inhaling and exhaling Open. and aware of it. So yeah, exactly. Like permeable. Mm. Are there any particular episodes of All Things Considered prior to your becoming the host in 2015 that particularly stand out in your memory? An episode you listened to that transformed how you thought about an issue or, oh, or that was there just some so funny... Many. Like, I mean, this is so random and I don't know why it sticks in my mind apart from the fact that it was a very memorable moment. And it's actually, it's not an interview that I've talked about in conversation before because it is so in some ways, just like, you know, another news of the day interview. But it was when foot and mouth disease was running through the UK and herds of cattle were being put down. Hoof and mouth disease, maybe it was called. Anyway, Noah Adams, who was then a host of All Things Considered, did an interview with a cattle farmer who had to put down his herd. And the cattle farmer was talking about how well he knew these individual cows and what it meant to have to put them down. And it was an arresting conversation about something that every news organization was covering because it was a huge story. It was probably 20 years ago or so. And I just remember sort of like the care and thought and patience and space that Noah gave the farmer who was talking about his experience. And thinking back on that interview, which, again, I haven't listened to since it aired, so I'm really reaching back into the recesses of my mind. But I think it speaks to the power of listening as an act of care. And this is a conversation that I used to often have with Audie Cornish, who was my co-host for many years and left NPR for CNN not too long ago. But I would talk about sort of the feeling of guilt of imposing on people during their worst moments. And she was the first person to say, yeah, but sometimes listening can really be an act of care and allowing people the space to tell their story and be heard can really be healing. And that's a service that we can give. That's a gift that we can provide to people that is not insignificant. And so I think about that conversation Noah Adams had with that farmer. And I, I think like when the show is at its best, when I'm at my best, that's the kind of thing that we're doing. We're making a big story understandable by presenting it through the lens of individual human experience. And we're also just listening and allowing the story to unfold kind of at its own pace. Yeah, well, I, I did want to ask you about this because listening, the time you've spent listening, I mean, I can only imagine the thousands of hours you've spent literally listening to the people you've interviewed, not to mention just listening to the radio. Mm -hmm. And you sort of more or less, and maybe, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you sort of described listening as an antidote as well, as, as something like a way of drawing collective lines and bringing mm -hmm. people together. Could you talk about that connective element that happens in the listening process? Yeah, we live in a world where there are really powerful forces trying to convince us that people who disagree with us or have different experiences from us are our enemies, whether it's social media algorithms or political parties or corporations that want us to see ourselves as members of a team fighting the other team, those are really, really strong gravitational forces. And I think listening can be a cure for that. I think if we listen to one another, and that doesn't just mean like subscribe to a newspaper where the editorial page writes things that you politically disagree with, it means actually like with your ears hearing a person talk and listen, it doesn't reveal something that we didn't know. It reminds us 
of what has always been true, which is that even people who seem profoundly different and distant from ourselves share so much more in common with us than we might initially realize. And I feel like when I talk about this, people often gravitate towards political differences within the United States. For me, the most powerful learning experience I had along these lines came when I was covering wars. Because as I write in the book, I think growing up in the United States, we have this incredible privilege of two huge oceans on either side of us. There has not been a war fought on American soil in more than a century. And although, you know, members of the armed forces make tremendous sacrifices when they serve overseas, it's overseas. And so it's easy for us, I think, to perceive people experiencing war, conflict, revolution, upheaval as somehow fundamentally different from us. And when I started going out and covering those stories, I realized that I had those blinders, that I had those preconceived notions in my head. And so the first mission was like, how do I dismantle that for myself? And then the second mission was, how do I do that for NPR listeners and the stories that I'm telling? How do I help them see the people who I'm reporting on as not just the phrase I use in the book is, in air quotes, war people in war places, but actually humans who we have a lot in common with. And I think it must be said here that your first war reporting experience was in eastern Ukraine, which given the time and the moment we're in, seems kind of extraordinary. And I think you were revealing things that now over the past year became even more clear back then. I didn't go there intending to cover a war. I went there to report sort of feature stories and think pieces about the aftermath of a revolution that had taken place six months earlier. And Russia had taken over the Crimea Peninsula at that point. But I was in Kiev reporting, you know, stories about corruption and the economy. And then separatists started taking over in Donetsk and Luhansk and these other cities in the east. And so, you know, I was the NPR guy who was in Ukraine. I just flew there. And suddenly I was covering what evolved into a war. But even then, like, it was nothing compared to the full-scale invasion that happened in 2022, when I then went back, not into Ukraine, but to the border of Poland and Ukraine, reporting on the refugee crisis, and did, as you say, feel like there had been this uncanny foreshadowing of everything that we're seeing now in the stories that I had been telling seven years earlier. I wanted to go back to several stories, and actually the Ames, Iowa barbershop story. And we'll touch on some of your NPR stories, but this is a personal life story first, because when thinking about your life and work through the lens of time, it's particularly interesting how interconnected everything is. And you have your own Ames, Iowa story. The first time you got drunk at a Korean karaoke yeah, this bar. This is true. I don't know where you found this, but it is absolutely <laughs> true. You've done your research. Well, while you were there on your high school's Odyssey of the Mind Wow. With, with your high school's Odyssey of the Mind delegation. Get, whoever your research assistant is, give them a raise. <laughs> this is true. So I did Odyssey of the Mind in high school, which was like a creative problem-solving competition, which sidebar, for all of the time that students spend in extracurriculars learning how to, I don't know, play soccer or play chess, creative problem-solving is possibly the most useful skill that I gained from any extracurricular activity I ever did. And Odyssey of the Mind was where I learned it. So despite the somewhat silly name, I'm, you know, big fan, recommend, endorse. But yeah, the world finals, they called it because I think there was like a team from Canada. Um, The world finals took place in Ames, Iowa on a college campus. 
And there was a bar that would let in people who didn't have IDs. And I went there with my team and we were sort of like drinking beer around the pool table. And a girl on our team, when I say team, it's like six to eight people. We're not talking about the size of like a soccer team. She was flirting with some guy who had like, I don't know if he was Korean or Korean American, whatever. He was like, there's this Korean karaoke bar. We all piled into his car and we drove out to this bar. And I remember sitting around this table and the server saying, we don't really do mixed drinks here. And look, I'd never ordered a mixed drink in my life. I didn't know what mixed drinks were. He was like, we just sort of drink, you know, things like neat or on the rocks. I didn't know what those words meant. And I said, like, what? And he said, like, cognac. And I was like, okay, cognac. So <laughs> high school Ari Shapiro in Ames, Iowa, in this Korean karaoke bar, is drinking cognac and getting shit-faced. And yes, you've done your research. Good job. That's where I, that's my Ames, Iowa story. <laughs> well, I just found that pretty profound at the very first. The first, that actually is totally uncanny. I should go back to Ames, Iowa and sort of, you know, the third leg of the stool. We should see if that barbershop's still there. and if Shaving women's legs. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And now to the NPR stories. You've had so many incredible excursions that I think really do span time in these fascinating, compelling ways. And I wanted to start with the Bobby Lucier controversy that came up during your time on the Romney campaign. Yeah. Because from a time perspective, this is fascinating thinking about the fact of what it means to be a beat reporter. Mm -hmm. And when you're on the beat, how certain things might return. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong, this is not a story that's in the book, and it's been a long time since I've thought about her, but I believe this was the woman who said Michelle Obama is not a first lady. She doesn't look like a first lady. Mm -hmm. She doesn't act like a first lady. She correct. wears sleeveless shirts. She does push-ups. But she didn't say all of that the first time I met her. I met her at a Romney rally where, you know, I thought of covering these rallies as almost like taking a pointillistic approach to painting a picture of the country, where I would go to a city where Romney was having a rally, and in the 10 minutes before the rally started, I would talk to three people, and I would only have enough time to ask each of them a couple questions, and I would get a little, you know, pinprick of color of what makes them tick, what makes them feel the way they feel and think the way they think. And my hope is that collectively over the course of the year covering the campaign, all of those different dots of color could paint a picture of the country we were living in at that time. And Bobby Lucier was this woman who, was it like a VA rally or some like veteran, something like that? I'm like the details are hazy. But she basically said like, oh, Michelle Obama, she's no first lady. And I put it on the air and people were outraged. They were furious. And I think there was like an ombudsman column about it or something like that. Like, And, you know, I'm sprinting on the treadmill of covering the campaign. So I've moved on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But some months later, crazy coincidence, I ran into her at another event. Through her husband. Through her husband. Okay, so you're going to have to remind me of some of the details here, because like I said, it was a decade ago, but I had the opportunity to follow up with her and say, what did you mean? And she said, oh, oh you know, I just meant that she wears, she does push-ups and wears sleeveless dresses. Right, because the accusations were that she had She been. was racist. And so then I said, well, you know, a lot of people interpreted it as a racist remark. And she said, absolutely not. I think that's what she said. Is that what she said? Yes. Absolutely <laughs> not. Um, and I'm not sure that there was ever any 
capital R resolution to it, but it was this opportunity to go back and say, well, here's how people heard what you said. You want to respond to that? Like, how do you react to hearing the way they interpreted your words? And I think since then, the country has had a much more robust and nuanced debate over race and implicit bias and ingrained prejudice and systems of oppression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in 2012, there was still sort of this sense of like, hmm, that sounds pretty racist. Is that racist? And being able to go up to that woman and say to her, a lot of people thought that sounded pretty racist. Is that racist? Was just a rare opportunity that I've not often had. Did I get the details of that right? You did. Okay. Another time-spanning story you've covered that stands out to me is the Pulse nightclub. Mm -hmm. I mean, earlier in your life and prior to reporting on the shooting, you'd spent time in Orlando as a regional reporter and had even spent time in that very nightclub. Yeah, which I didn't realize when I first volunteered to go cover the Pulse shooting. So, you know, in 2004, I was spending nine months in Florida filling in for the reporter who was on leave there. He was doing an academic year fellowship. And so I was all over the state covering different stories. And I was doing some reporting in Orlando. And I finished my reporting on a Monday night. And I thought, I'll just go find a bar and have a drink. So I found this gay bar. It was empty because it was a Monday. And I was chatting with the bartenders because there was nobody else there. And we just had this great report. So the next night they were off and they took me out with them. And we had a great time. I like forgot my jacket at the club that they took me to. And they mailed the jacket back to me in Miami. That was all 2004. And then in 2012, I volunteered to go cover the Pulse nightclub massacre because I knew that I brought something unique to that story. I had had enough experience with gay bars and clubs and specifically in Orlando to be able to access the importance of what this kind of place meant. And it wasn't until the end of that week when I was interviewing the editor of the Free Gay Weekly paper. He has since passed away, but his name was Billy Maines. And before we started the interview, I was making small talk and I said, you know, I actually went bar hopping in Orlando 12 years ago and met these bartenders and they were these great guys and I had such a good time. And Billy said, well, what was the bar? And I said, I forgot the name, but I'm sure it's closed. It was more than a decade ago. And he said, well, what did it look like? And so I described the layout where you walk on the front door and there's sort of a dance floor to your left and there's a bar to your right. And Billy said, that was Pulse. And then I looked in my phone for the contact information for one of those bartenders. And I saw that the email address I had for him in my phone ended with at PulseOrlando.com. One of them had since moved on and moved to Chicago. The other was still working at Pulse, but was not there the night of the massacre. But it was a real moment of like, like not only do I know the significance of a gay bar, but this particular memory that I had of this night of sort of finding community and making friends and being a stranger in a city where I don't know anyone and going to a gay bar where I know I will be welcomed. That story that was in my mind was about Pulse nightclub where the shooting happened. Yeah, I mean, the profound connection of your life intersecting with this national, international news story. Mm -hmm. And then I called up that bartender who had relocated to Chicago and he remembered me. He remembered that night. And we just had this moment of sort of bonding and reconnecting after all of those years. And it speaks to 
the role of identity in the stories that we tell as journalists and the tension between the view from nowhere that an earlier generation of journalists idealized and the experience and history and identity that we all carry with us, whatever our religion, gender, sexual orientation, nationality, we all have identity and that identity shapes all of us. And pretending otherwise doesn't necessarily make us better journalists. And sometimes that identity can actually be an asset and a strength. And so that's the tension that I try to explore in the book is like, where do we draw the line between wanting to be a surrogate for the listener so that they can imagine themselves in our shoes and also wanting to bring our unique perspective and insights into the stories that we tell? You've also found subjects that have these crazy, wild, (laughs) across time stories and connections especially when it comes to intergenerational links. And I'm thinking here of a story you reported about the former White House ethics advisor, Norm Eisen. Oh my God, this was an amazing story. Maybe I should have put this one in the book. (laughs) No, you know what? I considered putting in the book, but he wrote his own book about it. And I was like, let people read Norm Eisen's book. I'm not going to try to paraphrase what he did. I watched a talk where you spoke about this, though, and I was like, I, you know, it'd be a disservice to not bring this up with Ari. Mm. So I first heard about his story late in my career as a White House correspondent, late in my career. I did it for four years, and this is like towards the end of the four-year stint. I heard that the ethics czar Norm Eisen was moving on to become the U.S. ambassador based in Prague, and that his family had a connection there, that his mother was a Holocaust survivor, and that the house that the U.S. ambassador in Prague lives in had previously been the Nazi headquarters in Czechoslovakia. So I interviewed him in D.C. about it as a White House correspondent, not knowing that a couple years later I would relocate to London as a foreign correspondent. And once I got there, Norm said, Ambassador Eisen said, why don't you come visit? And so I did a follow-up story where I actually was in this house and he was Jewish and observant. So when his family moved into the house, They made the kitchen kosher. They every Friday night would light Shabbat candles and they would invite a large group of people from the community, Jewish, non-Jewish, to sit around the table with them and make Shabbat in this house that had originally belonged to a wealthy Czech family that was Jewish who had been massacred and then belonged to the Nazis, belonged in air quotes, and then belonged to the U.S. State Department. And he showed me this one coffee table that on the underside had the three stamps, the one from that original family, another from the Nazi party, and then the third, this is property of the U.S. State Department, item number, you know, eight, seven, whatever. It's like a novel. It's like a novel. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And Norm's mother at that point was still alive, couldn't bring herself to visit, but he did sort of do a FaceTime walkthrough with her. And it was so important and moving to him and to me as the person reporting the story that he was representing the country that had taken his mother in, in the country that she had had to flee. I mean, it's just incredible. You came across another story like this in Sarajevo while reporting on the centenary of Archduke Franz Ferdinand's assassination which helped trigger World War One? Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that one? Yeah. God, you're digging up all these great stories that are going to have to go in the next book. This was, <laughs> um, 
Not a story I had planned on telling. I was reporting all of these stories about the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. And because it was a huge international news event and I was late being assigned to go to Sarajevo, there were no hotel rooms available. I had found an Airbnb that was at the top of this walk up in downtown Sarajevo. And my fixer, who's sort of the local journalist that you hire to work with you when you're in a new country, uh, her name was Nijara. She and I were sort of walking up the steps of this old building, and I heard somebody speaking Hebrew. And I was like, what the hell is somebody speaking Hebrew in Sarajevo? Well, like, And it was a guy who looked like he was in his 50s or 60s and then a much, much older woman. And I speak a little bit of Hebrew, so I like tried in my rusty Hebrew to say like, what are you doing here? Like, like, I probably got that grammar wrong. And the guy spoke English and he explained that his mother and father grew up in Sarajevo, fled before World War II, and his mother was coming back for the first time to the building that she'd lived in, that she'd grown up in. And they were, you know, slowly walking up the stairs. And I invited them into the Airbnb apartment that we were renting and they sat around and I think I offered them tea or something like that. And then I heard the older woman speaking in Bosnian with Nijara. And it was clearly a very intense conversation. It was not small talk. And I, I sort of, you know, I interviewed them because I was like, this is incredible. Whatever this is, I want to capture it. And later... I asked Nijara sort of like over lunch or something what they had been talking about. And Nijara said that this older woman had asked whether she, Nijara, had lived through the siege of Sarajevo. Nijara was like in her 20s or 30s at that point. And she said, yes, she did. And she lost a lot of friends. And the old woman, um, Ella Pinto was her name. It just came back to me. Ella Pinto put her hands on Ijara's hands and she said, we who have lived through war have to tell the stories because without knowing, she said, without understanding war, there can be no peace. We have to tell what we lived through so that others understand. I'm being so ineloquent in the way that I phrase this, but something like how not to, how to, how to keep this from happening in the future. And she's just like this woman who lived through World War II bonding with this woman who had lived through the siege of Sarajevo. These women of different generations, of different religions, meeting by coincidence in the stairwell of this building in downtown Sarajevo. Where your Airbnb is. Where my Airbnb is. Crazy. And that's kind of what I mean when I say that, like, the stories that I remember most, the stories that stand out most in my mind that I think, like, change the way people view the world are not necessarily, like, the interview with the presidential candidate, which I'm totally comfortable doing, and it's the bread and butter of news, and I don't have any problem with that. But the people who might want to sniff at the interview with the two generations of women who survived war, I think they get it wrong. There's another interview you did that I absolutely love, where it's like, sure, you're there to cover the opening of the MLK memorial in Washington, D.C., but actually you meet this other guy who's there who has this intergenerational story that's incredible. I am reaching 
for this one. This is the thing that like, because I tell so many stories every day, there are profoundly moving ones that have disappeared from my brain. And I am afraid I need to have my memory jogged on the one that you're referring to. Well, this this man talked about how his father had been on the mall when MLK gave his I Have a Dream speech and that his father's father had either seen or come out of... Slavery. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because what comes to mind is is not about that interview per se, but rather about sort of the um, the evanescence of radio and that we do these stories and they're here and they're gone. And maybe they have an impact on somebody that I'll never know about. And maybe they change somebody's course in an imperceptible or very perceptible way. And the next day I'm telling the next story and the one after that and the one after that and the one after that. And that's one reason that I was always so hesitant to write a book is because like with a book, there are things that are in it and there are things that are out of it. And it sits on a shelf forever. And that's the book you wrote. And I'm sitting in this room right now with you surrounded by <laughs> hard cover books that, you know, have been written over many, many years and will never change and will always have the same stories in their pages. And part of what I love about All Things Considered is that every day there are different stories in those on-air metaphorical pages. But clearly... I'm of two minds about that because I did write a book. So ultimately, (laughs) there's something to be said for permanence, too. Yeah, it's almost like freezing some of the audio in time. Yeah. But also the thing that writing a book lets you do is take a step back and reflect more deeply on some of the stories that in the moment you might not have been able to make meaning out of, you know? And I think that's one reason that I, as you point out, gravitate so often to stories that you can tell over time that sort of stretch out over years because there's more opportunity for meaning making than there might be in that moment like you're sprinting on a treadmill of the news cycle and there's always something else demanding your attention. Hey everyone, taking a quick break here to tell you a little bit about our season seven presenting sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison, Van Cleef, and Arpels. In addition to exhibitions, publications, research projects, and public events, Lacole offers a range of courses led by experts across jewelry, craft, history, and the arts. With permanent campuses in both Paris and Hong Kong, Lacole plans to open a third space in Shanghai this year, and will soon open another in Paris, which will feature a public library of more than 7,000 reference works on jewelry and gems. At its main Paris space, Lacole is also opening a Gematech, or gem library, that contains some 1,200 stones for visitors to view and even handle. You can learn more about Lecole and its current and upcoming offerings at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now, back to the episode. So I did want to get into your upbringing. And your family left Fargo for Portland, Oregon, when you were eight years old in 1987. And in Oregon, you had nature at your fingertips in in this magical way. In your memoir, you write about foraging for mushrooms and how the tide pools 
you came across taught you patience. And you write, these little ecosystems showed me that nothing entirely reveals itself to the casual observer and that to fully see something requires more than a perfunctory glance. Tell me about these experiences in nature. Even today, my husband hates this. If we're like on a, a bridge over a creek, I always, and I mean always, stop halfway through, halfway across the bridge, and I stare into the creek. And, you know, there's something meditative about that. There's something about just sort of like be in the moment you're in. But also, you never see the crayfish while you're walking. You might not even see the great blue heron while you're walking or the little trout, you know. And it's only when you pause and you look that things start to reveal themselves. And there's something almost magical about that, right? Like a tide pool is a perfect example because there are the big things and there are the small things and there are the teeny things and there are the very noticeable things and there are the shy hidden things. And if you look at a tide pool for five full minutes, I swear every single time in minute number five, you will see something that you did not see in minute number one. And it's not because you were bad at seeing it's because there are things that you only perceive with patience. And I think that's a pretty good metaphor beyond tide pooling. <laughs> but also, I just love tide pools. They're amazing. They're like teeny little ecosystems full of these alien creatures that share the world with us, but look nothing like us and behave nothing like us. Like, they're amazing. And you became interested in identifying birds. Mm -hmm. is, is that something you've kept up? Not actively. When I was in high school, I had like a life list of birds and I still have a lot of that knowledge so I can tell whether something is a vulture or a hawk to give a very easy example. And I still get excited about seeing a cardinal on the East Coast because we didn't have them on the West Coast. But I don't actively go out bird watching with binoculars and a scope the way that I did when I was a kid. But the more important principle, I think, is just that the more you learn about life, the more interesting the world becomes. And whether that's about nature or politics or something else, there's just richness and depth all around you if you scratch the surface. There's so much we could cover during this time. And, and talking about your youth, I mean, you came out to your parents at 16, and which was unusual then. And you spent time in this really caring queer community in Portland. Yeah. But I feel like you've told those stories plenty and you write, okay. you write about them really well in the book. Thank you. I instead wanted to bring up your time as an HIV educator mm -hmm. for the Cascade AIDS Project. What was it like for you to be involved in that program and what did you see here and learn? This was in the 90s. So it was before there were really good treatments for HIV and AIDS. And I was a high school HIV educator who would sort of go from school to school demonstrating how you put the condom on the banana. And this was in a time of not great sex education in public schools. I'm not sure there ever has been a time of great sex education in public schools. It was a way for me to, you know, like the theme in the book is kind of building bridges and connections across difference. And this was another iteration of that. On a slightly darker level, though, I think it sort of a lot of gay men of my generation came of age with the idea that sex equals death and that like sex equals sickness and danger, which is something that like is a self-preservation tool 
from the days when HIV was a you know fatal diagnosis that would lead to AIDS. And I even remember one of the staffers at Cascade AIDS Project. I was a volunteer and the volunteers all worked with, you know, professionals who were paid. One of the staffers zero converted while I was doing my volunteer work. And it was a good opportunity to have a discussion about stigma, about all of the things that surround conversations about HIV, that even somebody whose entire job revolves around prevention and treatment was not immune from seroconversion, getting HIV. So it was a real growing up process, you know, like it's really adult themes that as a high schooler, it's like, well, if you're going to be gay, you better learn this stuff pretty quick because your life could depend on it. Glad I asked that question. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever told that story before, actually. You go on to Yale, <laughs> where you major in English and spend a lot of your time reading novels, plays, and poems, and of course, act, sing, do acapella. Yeah. I'm curious. Of course, acapella. Yeah. <laughs> what What was your thesis? I couldn't find oh, that anywhere. Uh, What'd you write your thesis? On? I wrote my thesis as an English major about the evolution of the gothic monster as a reflection of society's attitudes towards deviance. So in early Gothic novels, I'm totally going to geek out here. <laughs> in early Gothic novels, you have the Gothic monster as a part of society, a byproduct, not a byproduct, like integrated into society, just as in the early days of sort of like, I don't know, sexual theory, there was aberrant behavior, but not aberrant people. So there was homosexual action, but there were not homosexual individuals. Then as the Gothic novel evolves, you have something like Frankenstein, where Frankenstein's monster is a creation of society who is outcast from society. And the body politic sort of like expels the monster as an other. And the monster becomes the vehicle for all of these categories of deviance. And then moving forward in time, you get to something like Bram Stoker's Dracula, where Dracula is coming from outside of society, carrying with him the archetypes of the foreigner, the Jew, the homosexual, et cetera, et cetera, all of these categories of deviance that at the same time, society was deeply invested in saying, like, this is the kind of person who is not like us. This is the label of the person who is fundamentally deviant and flawed. And I was proud that in the title of my thesis, I used the phrase from deviance to deviance with A-N-C-E to A-N-T-S, because the evolution was from deviance as a behavior, A-N-C-E, to deviants as individuals, A-N-T-S. I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Is anyone still listening? Have, have they all tuned out? Have they all just <laughs> skipped to the next episode? <laughs> uh, your path to NPR was thanks to Nina Totenberg. And I was hoping you might share with listeners who she is. and An icon. Looking back, <laughs> what her impact on your life has been. Yeah, so Nina was one of the members of the vanguard of women in journalism who were kind of the 
maybe not the first generation, but very, very early on when women were not doing hard news, she was doing hard news. And she has for more than 30 years been the legal affairs correspondent who covers the Supreme Court and is just a force to be reckoned with. After NPR rejected me for an internship, Nina gave me an opportunity. So I learned so much about her early on because I had just never taken a journalism course. I had never written for the school paper. And she taught me how to do journalism. Like I would transcribe her interviews and think about when she jumped in and asked a question, when she let the person keep going, when she pushed back, when she didn't, all of those things. But what I really think about when you ask that question is when I became a justice reporter many years later, I was covering the Justice Department for NPR. And as I started the beat, I thought one way to build the skills and the knowledge that I need to do this beat well is to talk to a lot of people who used to have senior positions in the Justice Department in earlier administrations and can tell me what I need to know. So I just had lots and lots of lunch and coffee dates with people from like, you know, the Reagan, the Clinton, the Bush, whatever era. And all of them had Nina Totenberg stories, like going as far back as Nixon. And what I realized was that Nina did not become a force of nature by being famous and successful. She became famous and successful by being a force of nature. And she was always a person who would not take no for an answer. She was always a person who insisted on getting to the bottom of things. She was always a person who worked harder than everybody else, even when nobody knew her name. Now we all know her name and she could easily rest on her laurels, but she is still working as hard as anybody else at the age of, well, I'm not going to say her age right now, but let me just say it's long after many other people would retire. What's your own reporting philosophy if you could sort of sum it up? And how do you see that connected to what you were learning from Nina? I mean, you've said I'd rather talk to people than about people, Mm -hmm. which I love. Could you speak to that approach? Yeah, I hate the phrase ordinary humans or ordinary people because like none of us are any more or less ordinary than anyone else. However, if... The news event is supplemental SNAP benefits ending next month for food assistance. You could address that by talking to the chair of the Senate committee that is considering reinstating those benefits. Or you could cover that by talking to the woman who runs a food pantry in Nevada. Or you could cover it by talking to a person who has been visiting or was able to stop visiting and previously had to go to that food pantry. I, I'm i totally happy to talk to the head of the committee, but I would always rather talk to the person who's lived experience. I mean, like the line that I've lived by that I think like I'm certainly not the only journalist to say this. You tell a big story by telling a small story. And so the way to cover huge events, whether it's a war or a change in legislation or a pandemic is by talking to one person. So like, I'll give you an example. Early in, another example rather, early in the pandemic, we were reaching the unfathomable death toll of 50,000 people dead from COVID, which we think back now, it's like more than a million people in this country. But at that point, 50,000 seemed unfathomable. And so I started thinking, well, okay, how can we cover this landmark on All Things Considered? 
And I thought, well, whether you are surrounded by death or feel untouched by it depends on a lot of specific things. Your race, your age, where in the country you live, what your occupation is. And I thought, let's take each of those categories and have one conversation that drills down into that category. And over the course of the show on that day that we hit 50,000, we will sprinkle these four conversations. And so for geographic location, we identified the hardest hit borough in the hardest hit city in the country, which was the Bronx. And we talked to the head of a co-op that had, you know, hundreds of people in the Bronx. For race, we talked to the head of a black church in a suburb of Chicago. You know, it was that sort of thing. And so for this unfathomable event that every news organization was covering, I was finding four specific personal conversations we could have that would make it real for people. I also think about your joy of cooking here. There is an interesting connection between the act of making food and the act of bringing the different ingredients together that make a rich story. Mm-hmm. Do you think about it in those terms at all? Do you, like, And do you see a link between that? Because also when you're cooking, let's just say you're making a home-cooked meal, Mm -hmm. like obviously it's an act of connection. You're literally breaking bread. Totally. And the act of an interview is kind of the same. You're like, all right, I'm going to let you talk and I'm going to listen and we're going to connect and hopefully something comes out of this. Yeah, I don't think there's anything I can do that can as profoundly, quickly, and fundamentally change the way a person feels as cooking for them. You're hungry when you sit down and you're satiated when you get up. Like that's amazing, right? That by just giving somebody a bowl of pasta or an omelet or toast, like I can improve the way they feel in a very short time with very minimal effort. Have you used food in reporting? Oh, all the time. Absolutely. Um, funny. I was putting together my website, which like I had been procrastinating doing forever. And I was like, God, before this book comes out, I better make a website. And I wanted to do a like media page. And I realized like I've done a really inappropriate number of interviews about food. But food is such a powerful vehicle for storytelling, because anywhere you go in the world at any time in history, no matter the wealth or poverty, no matter the adversity, whatever the circumstances, there was always food. And that food tells you something about the time and place and people that you're surrounded by. And whether it's like MRE meals ready to eat that service members are eating in a war zone or a banquet that is served to a visiting president of the United States in a foreign country, like the food tells you something. And yes, I think food and storytelling are similar in the ways that you mentioned. And also, they're both things that are here and are gone. And like in the best possible scenario, They leave you better for having experienced them, but also they drift on downstream and then you move on to the next one. Like there's always a next meal. There's always a next story. And there's something about that sort of ephemerality that I like too. As the host of All Things Considered, (laughs) you spend an enormous amount of time reading. Mm -hmm. How does this reading wend its way into your work? Well, I read fiction way more than nonfiction for pleasure, but I read both for work. And I don't have a lot of time to read for pleasure because I do so much reading for work. I'll just tell you honestly, I think there are a lot of nonfiction books that don't need to be as long as they are. 
my mother sometimes refers to book reviews that I do on All Things Considered. And I want to gently correct her. Sometimes these really engaging conversations you're hearing are of books that I don't necessarily enjoy and wouldn't recommend reading. So I really, for various reasons, I don't want you to think of it as a review, but particularly because I don't necessarily want people to think I'm always endorsing the, sorry, I I shouldn't be saying this. Well, there is a fine, there is a fine line, right? Right. And I think like there are fascinating topics that I want to interview somebody about on All Things Considered that I might not recommend anybody read the book about. But Fiction, on the other hand, to me, is an incredible vehicle for empathy and a tool to see the world through the eyes of somebody else. Because for me, more than television or movies or theater or newspaper articles, reading fiction allows me to see the world through the eyes of a person in a different time, in a different place, who is completely unlike me or slightly unlike me and really like get inside of their mind and body and inhabit their view of the world from where they sit. I think that's something that only fiction can do. And I think it's an incredibly powerful force. I love that in part reading a novel by Amitav Ghosh, you ended up going and reporting a story. Yeah. Yeah. So I had read this novel, The Hungry Tide, having never heard of the Sundarbans, which is this mangrove island watery landscape that spans the border of India and Bangladesh. Years after I read The Hungry Tide, I was planning a reporting trip to India focused on climate change. And my producer and editor and I were talking about, you know, India is a big country. There are a lot of places. There are a lot of ways to tell the story about climate change. I had just been to the UN Climate Summit in Paris. And so the idea was, again, rather than talk about people, which is what everyone was doing in Paris, I wanted to talk to people in India. And so we're like, where do we go in India? And I kept in our meetings saying... Look, I don't want the fact that I read this novel to be the deciding factor of where we go, but but this place does seem really interesting. And if journalistically it makes sense to go there, I think we should consider going there. And ultimately, that's where we went. And it was just fascinating. It was, you know, one of the things I love about my job is that, like, would I recommend that somebody go to the Sundarbans as a tourist? Sure, but I might not put it at the top of my list. But to go there as a journalist and immerse myself in this world and talk to people about their lives who are in this place that is so far off the path that I would ever find myself on, one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had. And we told so many stories from there. This one about a goddess called Bonbibi and one about man-eating tigers that were encroaching on human settlements because rising seas were swallowing up their habitat. Like, And we also had one of the most delicious meals I've ever eaten that came out of the tiny, teeny kitchen on the boat that we were on going from island to island. (sighs) Amazing. Thank you, Amitav. And you spoke spoke to Ghosh. I spoke to Amitav Ghosh, yeah. And then later I interviewed him about another. So I didn't interview him about The Hungry Tide because that was before I was a host. But he came out with another novel called Gun Island, which I interviewed him about later, Mm. which also had themes of climate change, actually. In an interview with you, the novelist Nathan Englander said, that's the beauty of reading. That's why it's subversive, because it crosses time and space and culture. Mm -hmm. Great quote. Such a great quote. I mean, look, fiction writers know what they're doing. When I say it's an empathy tool, unlike anything else I know, I'm not telling them something that is a surprise to them. Good fiction writers In the same way that I'm telling stories on the radio because I want to subtly alter the trajectory of somebody's day or the way they think about the world, 
I think that's what fiction writers are doing too. They know that. They can articulate that better than I can. I didn't want to finish this interview without bringing up your work with Pink Martini. And beyond that, your cabaret work with Alan Cumming. For the uninitiated, Pink Martini was founded in the culture wars of the 1990s and has continued touring for nearly 30 years. You once reported on them and later joined the band. Maybe we'll talk about that. (laughs) I know it's a long story. It was years later. It was not a conflict of interest by the time (laughs) I joined the band. (laughs) The statute of limitations had expired. I was hoping you might share your journey with Pink Martini and how you think about your time, your vacations, basically, Mm -hmm. on tour with them. Yeah, so I use my annual leave to go on tour with Pink Martini, which is the most fun, satisfying, thrilling, exhilarating, wild adventure. As you say, like, I was a fan of theirs when I was in high school, when they were this little local band in Portland, Oregon. And I'm still a fan of theirs. And I sit in the audience during sound check before a show. And I hear these songs that I've heard literally probably thousands of times now. And I still love it. And at the end of the show, when we're all on stage singing Brazil and we're like shaking those rattlers and the audience is doing a conga line, I just think I am so damn lucky that I get to be here and be a part of this. Like that I'm just present for the moment is a gift let alone the fact that I get to sing and be a part of this band and feel like I contribute something, which, you know, initially I felt like they were doing me a favor, like it was kind of a shtick, like, oh, the NPR journalist is singing with Pink Martini. That's cute. That's cute, exactly. (laughs) And over the years, like, they've asked me to record enough songs on their albums, and I've performed in enough countries where people have never heard of NPR that I have allowed myself to believe that I actually have earned a place among them. And there's a good time sensitive connection here because Kim Hastrider also. She does. She plays the cymbals and the triangle and occasionally on special occasions, the glockenspiel. I met her in the audience of a Pink Martini show before the show. I knew who Kim Hastrider was and I imagined her to be a kind of imperious Anna Wintour type. And so I'm sitting in the rows of Town Hall in New York, and I sit next to this woman with these cherry red glasses and just strike up a conversation with her. And we start talking about the real housewives of Atlanta. And we're cackling and we're just having the best time. Finally, I was like, by the way, I'm Ari. And she said, I'm Kim. And I said, wait, you're not Kim Hastrider, are you? And she was like, yeah. And we've been friends ever since. <laughs> Your Alan Cumming story is not totally dissimilar from that. That's he, true. He came to a performance yeah. of uh, Cabaret. I met him backstage after a show of Cabaret because one of my best friends from college was in it with him. This was the second time he did it on Broadway. But he was running off to a campaign for Scottish independence. And so we didn't spend that much time together. But it was a quick hello, how are you? He knew my work. I knew his work. And then later, he asked if I would moderate a live book talk with him in D.C. And then he did a live performance with me in New York when I did a solo cabaret show at Joe's Pub. And then eventually he asked if I wanted to make a show with him. And of course, I said yes. Ach and oi. Ach and oi. Ach is like the Scottish equivalent of oi. So he's the the ach, the Scotsman. I'm the oi, the Jew. And it's just the most fun. It is so like 
He's become this kind of older brother, mentor, figure, friend to me who I'm so grateful to have in my life. He lives life the way I aspire to. And the fact that he wants to hang out with me just is still like, I feel very, very lucky. To finish, I wanted to close our conversation today on the fact that so much of your work I view as an act of translation. And it's not lost on me that you speak or sing in roughly a dozen languages. Well, let me qualify. I do not speak roughly a dozen languages, but I do sing in roughly a dozen languages. I said or singing. Don't want to give <laughs> listeners the wrong idea. Do you consider what you do an act of translation? At the end of the day, what do you hope comes across? Yeah, I um, as the only Jewish kid in my elementary school, as the only out queer kid in my high school, I was performing acts of translation then. I was sort of passing between worlds, trying to help people see each other as a little bit less foreign and strange within those ecosystems that I was walking among. And it's funny, even now, I'm just thinking about like my husband is in the reserves of the Air Force and also the reserves of the D.C. police. And he's sort of like the only police friend that his gay friends have, and he's the only gay friend that his police friends have. And so he's doing some of the same thing. But when I am telling a story on the radio, whether it's about somebody who is working at a prison in rural Mississippi or escaping a war in Syria, I want listeners to feel like they understand something about that person without judgment and feel a sense of connection and hopefully empathy. Because ultimately, like what I want to do is help us understand the ways in which we are more similar to each other than different from each other. And, and the, the, the way I know how to do that is through journalism and through singing with Pink Martini and Alan Cumming, and now also writing a book. <laughs> so I guess there are a few ways of doing it and occasionally cooking food too. <laughs> if you're open to it, would you finish this conversation by singing something in a foreign language, a, a language that's not your native tongue? Yeah, there's a song that I recorded for Pink Martini many years ago in Spanish. That's by a Cuban composer named Ernesto Lucuona. And it's called Yo Te Quiero Siempre, which means I will always love you. It's not the Dolly Parton version. And it goes like this. Que tristeza tengo desde que te fuiste, dejando en mi ser hondo padecer amargo dolor. Sé que no me quieres, nunca me quisiste, y tu falso amor fue una burla cruel. Ah, mi corazón, a pesar de todo, yo te quiero siempre. Y mi anhelo es verte junto a mí, besarte otra vez. Yo te quiero siempre, aunque sé que no me quieres. Vuelve mi engañar, si mi si no es 
por tu amor llorar. Ari Shapiro, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Extra thanks to our Season 7 presenting sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. A unique place for learning, Lecole welcomes the general public to the world of jewelry through courses, conferences, exhibitions, videos, and book publications. You can find out more about Lecole at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleef. A-R-P-E-L-S dot com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To join the Slowdown's new membership program, which provides access to subscriber-only newsletters, in-depth stories, immersive interviews, curated recommendations, and exclusive event invitations, go to slowdown.tv slash subscribe. That's slowdown.tv slash subscribe. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Salmon. <laughs> <laughs>